So we are going to be in Genesis 13. This past Sunday, Monday, the pastors kind of, we took off for Sunday, Monday uh, to kind of get away, to remember that we actually like each other, which is always really helpful. And so we went up to Eugene. It reminded me how much I love Grant's Pass. That's, we got to get away somewhere. And we did a number of things. It was really mellow. But there was two things that we like intentionally did. One was uh, a young man who was here on, not this Tuesday, the previous Tuesday, had been taken up to Teen Challenge. He's uh, a guy that we love, um, came out of a drug culture, seemed to do really well, and then relapsed back into heroin. So a couple of families here kind of grabbed a hold of him took him up the team challenge, paid for his first month. And there's a two-week time where the drugs are still in you and heroin, you just want to split. So we made a 30-mile jaunt up to where they're at. Team challenge, really cool kind of thing. It's, it's actually adult in team challenge now. So he's a young man. And we just prayed for him, just encouraged him. Bro, we love you. Hang in there. Uh, then on the way home, we stopped in at Ellen Starr. If you don't know who Ellen Starr is, uh, she's a wonderful woman, a uh, member of this body, who had some issues. And, and for a while, we were trying to figure out what it was. And then in September, she was diagnosed with ALS. And so now she's in the midst of ALS. And this other lady named Ruth, has. She's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, you say, that is awesome. She stopped her life, quit her job to care for her friend, Ellen, as she goes through ALS. Like, it's, it's just unbelievable. And so we, all of us, all 11 of us, piled into her house and encouraged her and prayed for her. And to me, that was just like, it was really special to do those two things. But it got me thinking about, like, faith. Because you have two people really in different spots, both in the faith, both believers in Jesus, but they're both in conflict. One of them because of bad choices, no doubt about it, you gotta own that. But the other one, because of the brokenness of this world. It's just a broken world. And that's the way it happened for her. In this life, you're gonna have conflict. Being a Christian, being a believer, does not pull you out of this world where you walk above it somehow. No, you still go through the same things. Sometimes because of bad choices and sometimes just because of the brokenness of this world. What we're gonna see with Abram here is he starts doing really well, but he still has conflict. And he resolves this conflict. And this story doesn't always go this way. The resolution in this story is a faith resolution. He walks by faith, not by sight. And the resolution is brilliant. So that's where we're at. Let's jump in. Genesis 13, verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. For those that are new, this is a summary verse. 
It's including some very important information. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife. (laughs) Why do you think that's included in there? Because in chapter 12, he had lost her. Absolutely. So I'm sure Abram right here is really embarrassed and ashamed of himself. He's probably sleeping in the doghouse or back then sleeping with the camel. I don't know what you did back then, but he's definitely just, oh no, because he had lied and his wife had been taken away from him and it was brutal and God had to intervene. So the fact that she's with him is brilliant. I've always thought, I wonder how every argument between Abram and Sarai went from this point forward, right? Sarah, I'm always telling you to close the gate to the goats. They got out again. They ruined my leather lazy boy. Abram, I'm always telling you don't lie to Pharaoh about me. (laughs) She's going to win every time. All right, no problem. Here's what I love. Abram goes back to the Negev. He does not let failure win. He doesn't go off into Ethiopia or somewhere else. He doesn't let failure win. Don't let failure win. Sometimes bad choices, sometimes those bad choices can actually, God, I believe, call it Judo theology, can even turn bad choices into something that doesn't mean there's not consequences, doesn't mean Abram didn't cry a lot at night, doesn't mean there's not that, but God has the power to even take our bad choices and do something brilliant out of them. There's a book, I've mentioned it before, it's called Cradles of Eminence. Two researchers, looked at 300 of like the most impacting people, people like FDR, Einstein, Gandhi, Clara Barton, you name it, big time people. What was the cradle? What what gave birth to their greatness? It's a fantastic study because what they found was this, three quarters, 75% of them grew up in extreme poverty. And we're talking 100 years ago, extreme poverty. You couldn't go to somewhere and get a meal to eat, like real hard poverty. The majority had parents, not like Warden June Cleaver, but much closer to Al and Peggy Bundy from Married with Children, like crazy rock star parents, not in the good sense. Quarter of them had physical handicaps. It just, the list is just unbelievable. And what they found, their, their evaluation of this was, it's, it's not how hard life is that matters, it's how you handle the hardship. That's all that matters. Not how hard life is, it's how you handle brokenness and failure and mistakes. And this book is supposed to be shaping the mind of the believer about something when it comes to God's character. And it's this, God gives a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And I would even say this, a daily chance. Because Lamentations 3.23 says this, his mercies are new every morning. Brand new chance, Matt. Yesterday is gone. What are we gonna do together? That's, it's supposed to shape us like that. So yeah, Abram, bonehead, chapter 12. But chapter 13, he does not let that anchor him. He does not let, them, let the, that mistake and those problems twist him or, hey, I can't do anything. No way. He sets out in chapter 13, I'm going back to where I belong. It's brilliant. Does not let failure 
win. So now we see the trouble that's coming. Verse two. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev, southern part of Israel, as far as Bethel up to the middle, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. At that time, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Trouble. It happens for two reasons. Proximity and possessions. First, proximity. They're too close to each other. Do you know that proximity often causes trouble? If you have more than one child, you know proximity causes trouble, right? Have your kids ever said, I want my own bedroom. I don't want to sleep with her. I don't want to sleep with him. I can't sleep in the same room as them. Or they get in the whole, they touched me. They touched me. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. Their pajamas touched my pajamas. Yuck. The line in the back seat. Guys ever did that? Right? This is my area. Don't cross this line. He touched my side of the seat. She touched my side of the seat. Be quiet. I'm going to come back there and touch both of you. (laughs) Right? It's like this. There's a proximity problem. Very often when we get close to people, there's a rubbing that happens. Do you know the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field? It's not because of bugs or sickness or loneliness. They went into it with that understanding. Not because of one ply toilet paper. It's one reason. Other missionaries. Problems with other missionaries. Rubbing each other. Here's what I wonder. Lot was with Abram and Sarai the whole time in Egypt. He is inside of this situation as it's taking place. I wonder what he thought about the whole thing. He's watching the lie. He's watching the harem. He's watching Abram get rich during this whole thing. I wonder what Lot is thinking this whole time about Uncle Abe. I wonder if he lost respect for Uncle Abe. You know, I used to think this about my uncle, but ugh. I thought he was a great man, but ugh. I've noticed the closer you get to somebody you really admire, the less you like them. It's pretty natural. Because too often what happens is when we look from the outside in on somebody, we think they're not human anymore. We think they're like this great, oh my goodness, they must just always do things right. And then the closer you get to someone, you realize, no, they're human just like me. That every idol has clay feet. And one day it's gonna fall over. So here, I think maybe we're getting little hints of this. Lot, hmm, not sure about his uncle anymore. What I found for me personally, a key in kind of not doing that is I look for God's grace in people. Because when I see God's grace in people, 
It makes me love God that much more and like that person that much more. Instead of looking about, hey, how, I, I, can I squeeze some greatness from them? It's, no, how can I see God's grace at work in this person's life? And then I enjoy them so much more. Lot, I think he's a little disenfranchised or disenchanted with his uncle. So that's the first thing, proximity. He knows too much maybe. And then possessions. Chapter 12, they head to Egypt because they can't afford food. They're poor. That's their problem in chapter 12. Chapter 13, the problem is prosperity. In fact, the word rich used for Abram in verse two, it literally means heavy. Because when you're a nomad and you've got riches, it's this heavy thing that you have to put on your donkeys. So he was very, it's, it's literally, he was very heavy. He's got a ton. He's got cash. And it causes problems. We are most Americans, we are under the idea that if we had more money, if we had just a little bit more money, if we were a little heavier in silver or gold, everything would be fine. Most people believe that. If I just had a little bit more. But money is relative, isn't it? It's been said the more money you have, the more relatives you have as well. It's like their problems come with it. Jesus said this about money. He said, Look out for the deceitfulness of riches because they promise more than they can ever deliver. We think they can deliver all this stuff and they never do. I have two books, both of them non-religious by non-believers that I, I highlighted this certain section. They both dealt with kind of the same question about money. The first one was happiness is a serious problem by a Harvard professor, Professor Gilbert. And he grabbed this study that looked at people who were paralyzed from the neck down and people who had won the lottery. And they followed these two people, two kinds of people for a year. The people who had a serious injury and they were paralyzed from the neck down, real drop in happiness, but then it came back. The people who won the lottery, massive increase in happiness, but a, a real dramatic drop. After one year, they were crossing they had the exact same happiness, but the paralyzed person was on an upward trajectory and the lottery winner was on a downward trajectory. We think if I win the lottery, I'd be so happy. I don't think so. Yeah, someone said, I think I would. I'll beat that statistic. <laughs> we all think we would. Truth is we wouldn't. We think. The other one was, it was a book called Self and Soul. And the professor in this book looked at people who had sold everything. They'd been very wealthy at some point in their life, figured out money isn't it. They had sold everything and then they had moved to some third world country and lived like a third world person. And there was a researcher that went and visited this, it's a very small group of people, to find out, well, why'd you do that? What's happening? How do you feel now? And the researcher, this is a researcher who wrote this. The researcher said, she could not believe how frequently and loudly these people laughed. That's what stuck out to her. This is a different kind of person. Like they frequently and loudly laugh, which isn't ultimately the kind of life we want to lead. Like I want to laugh more. I want that kind of happiness. We think money can buy it, but it's deceitful. It promises more than it can deliver. Please know this, 
Money cannot buy the blessings a family freely gives. Abram gets this. Money cannot buy the blessings that a family freely gives. So Abram's gonna make decisions based on that. And I read today, all days, I read a interview by, that Brad Pitt did with GQ. I know, don't judge me. I did read it. <laughs> uh, just because, I don't, it's for the ministry. I'll say that. <laughs> I read it for the ministry. But it was very interesting because he said this. He, he said this. He goes, I'm looking for something. He said, I saw it when I talked with a woman in Africa who had lost nine children and she laughed in a way that I've never laughed in my life. He said something very similar to self and soul. And then he said this, I wanna live a life because th that's different because when people are close to dying, he, says, he said, here's what I've noticed. They don't talk about possessions, they talk about people. They're not like, hey, I had this Corvette. Not, nothing wrong with it. If you have a Corvette, great. I'm not down on Corvettes. But at the end of the day, you don't talk about cars. You talk about people. Because I wanna lead, lead the kind of life that I end up talking about people. So the trouble here, proximity and possessions. Being too poor and being too rich, if you don't have the right heart, can be a problem. That's why the proverb says this, Lord, don't give me too little that I steal and don't give me too much that I forget about you. There is a balance to it, a correct balance. So now there's trouble. There's strife between them. So here's what Abram does. Verse eight. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me? If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. Abram, verse eight, says, man, we can't keep doing this. We gotta make peace. Sunday, we talked about this. We need peacemakers in Grants Pass. Every Sunday, out of all the churches of this valley, I pray that people say, I'm gonna go and be a peacemaker. In my home, in my neighborhood, on the streets, I'm gonna make peace. The Proverbs say this, a kind answer turns away wrath. Are we doing kind answers? The Proverbs say this, that, uh, a quarreling wife is like a constant dripping. <laughs> drip, 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 nag, 
nag, nag, nag, nag, nag, nag, nag. Same with the husband. There's nothing worse than living in a quarrelsome house where there's strife and contention and you don't wanna go home. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons, the adult, mature, full access to the Father, sons of God. Let's be peacemakers. We, you can do it anywhere. I'll never forget this. Uh, is when I was an engineer flying through San Francisco, coming out of this bathroom, I'm right behind this big old guy. He's got all this stuff, way too much stuff. We're going out the outdoor when someone decides to go in the outdoor, in the out kind of area. And this guy, the, the guy in front of him was massive. This guy that came the wrong direction, he was short. He, he reminded me of Danny DeVito, just this kind of squat little guy, just both of them are head down. It was like a collision. The guy holding all the stuff, doing the right thing, it just goes everywhere. And you don't want to pick up stuff like around the bathroom. It just feels like, eh. It was like the entire airport just froze, like, oh no, right? What's going to happen? The little guy who had done the wrong thing, the big guy just ticked. He did the best move I've ever seen. He just went, I am so sorry came right up to the big dude, just like hugged him around the waist, essentially. Just gave him a giant hug. And the big guy's just like, all right, no problem. We need that. Tons in Grants Pass. Oh, my bad, no problem. Let me give you a hug. We need diffusers of situations. Abram does that. Before it gets out of hand, before it gets crazy, Abram says, I'm gonna make peace here. I'm gonna let, not let this thing progress and get worse and worse and worse. So how does he do it? Number one, Abram is willing to be wronged. Remember I said on Sunday, he's the patriarch. What he says is the law. He's the man. It's his nephew, right? He's willing to be wronged. He's willing to say, Lot, you're the lesser dude, you're the lower dude, I could do whatever I want, but I'm not going to. I give you first choice and I'll take the leftovers. He's willing to be wronged. Do you know as believers, that same mandate is for us? It's 1 Corinthians chapter six. It's an entire chapter about lawsuits. How fascinating. <laughs> 2000 years ago, they struggled with lawsuits. And in verse seven, Paul says this, why won't you suffer wrong? Why won't you allow yourself to be defrauded? Paul's like, are you kidding me? Take it. Come on. The gospel has made you so wealthy. Why are you arguing over pennies? What kingdom are you living for? Why won't you suffer wrong? Lose to win the ultimate win. That's countercultural. Right now, here's what we do. We sacrifice people all around us to get our possessions, don't we? You wrong me here, your line, our property line, whatever it is, we're gonna fight to the nail. Live in a miserable neighborhood because we're, we're all angry at each other over something. Who wants to live in that? And I don't. We're supposed to be opposite from that. How many families have divided over possessions? Probably a good percentage of us. My uncle and my aunt won't talk to each other now because my uncle, who's the oldest in the family, 
was made by my grandma, executor of the will. And there was four people he has to divide things up with. There was no way he's making the four in my family happy. No way. When I recount that in my mind, the last thing I'd ever do to one of my kids is make them executor of my will. There's no way. I'm making an outside person, an attorney, you know, no way. Put that weight on somebody. It's amazing how many people are divided over possessions. We fight our families and over some stupid thing. It was over a doll. One of the things was over a doll. I mean, are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. They don't talk to each other now. The church has to be so countercultural to that. We have to be those that say, no way. We fight for our families and forget possessions. I'll sacrifice, but I'll be wronged in that because you are more important than some kind of possession. No way. That's what we need to be. So number one, Abram makes peace because he's just willing to be wrong. Take the best land. I don't care. You're more important than land. I care about you more a lot. I love that. Number two, he just says, verse eight, we can't strive. We have to stop this striving. We cannot go on with striving. I love that because 2 Timothy 2.24 has become one of my life verses because I tend to strive. And it says this, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Number two, Abraham said, we're not doing the, no, no. What's been happening so far, we're not doing anymore. We're not doing it anymore. I think Abram would be a great neighbor. Don't you? Hey, take whatever, hey, whatever. And we're not striving, man. We're not gonna live like that. Would people say that about me? Matt is a great neighbor. I'm so glad to have him around me. I hope so. Would people say that about you? They are great neighbors. Man, they're just, they're so easy to work with. Man, if there's a problem, it's, it's always common sense. I hope so. I hope we're the best neighbors in Josephine County. No strife. We're not doing that. We're not living like that. Then thirdly, here's the problem. It's a heart issue. If you look at Lot, look what he does. Verse 10, it says he saw this land. Then verse 11, he took the land. He saw it and he took it. I want that. There is a theme in the Bible. They're called, uh, it's called biblical theology, where you see these long lines where it's the same pattern. Seeing and seizing. Eve saw the fruit and she grabbed the fruit, right? David saw Bathsheba and the Bible says he took Bathsheba, right? Achan saw the Babylonian garments in the conquest of Jericho, and he took them and sunk his family. Samson saw the pretty girl and demanded his parents, get her for me. It's, it's over and over, the same exact thing. Seeing and taking, and there's trouble. I've been reading about Sears because they're going bankrupt. And one article I read said Sears, 120 years ago with their catalog, was more disruptive to the American economy than Amazon is today. Because for the first time, you have these people uh, getting this magazine into their home, opening it up and seeing things that they never even knew existed. 
And now they're all of a sudden seeing all these things that they are thinking, I have to have this. I don't know how I have not lived without this device. Oh my goodness, I gotta have it, right? It was, it was massively disruptive to the American economy. Seeing, I've got to have that, oh my goodness. I didn't even know people had things like that. It's amazing to me. Like spinners, have you seen those with the kids? I'm like, use a pencil, they're cheap. But no, you gotta buy different colors. Oh man, you get on Amazon, there's like 14,000 different kinds of them. I need all of them. Like we have a new way to see and seize, don't we? Pinterest, my house doesn't look like Pinterest, oh no. Instagram, I don't look like her, oh no. Be careful of that. You see, it seizes you and there's trouble. It is a theme in the Bible. And notice this about Lot's heart. He says two things about the land he sees. All right? First of all, we know this about Lot. He had cash. Verse five says he had herds, he had people, he had tents. Lot was rich, but he wasn't rich like the Egyptians. Oh, the Egyptians, they have cash. I mean, my chariot, it's two years old. I drive a clunker. My iPhone is a six, man. I don't know how I do it either. It's a cross I must bear, right? He had plenty, but it wasn't like the Egyptians. So when he looks at this land, he says two things about it. Number one, it's like Egypt. There's cash, there's, biz, there's money to be made there. But then number two, he says, very interesting. It's like the garden of Yahweh. And one commentary, I think it's right, said that is a hint at what really was going on spiritually with Lot. See, in the garden, we knew who we were. We had an identity. We didn't have to build towers. We didn't have all this stuff that we had to try to do. We already knew deep inside. We had a satisfaction of soul. I know who I am. And we weren't searching to figure out who we were or identity or filling or whatever, we already had it. But when we were kicked out of the garden, we lost identity. And now we're always trying to get it back somehow. So Lot believes this. Lot believes in all of his heart that if I can just get more cash, that will complete me. If I could just live like the Egyptians live, that would complete me. I'll be happy. That's such a theme in life. You ever watch Chariots of Fire? Such a great movie. Harold Abrahams, when he's asked, why do you run? Because he's such an angry kind of character. Why do you run? Why are you running? Why are you here? What are you doing? And his answer is so great. He says, I have 10 seconds to validate my existence on earth. If I get a gold medal, then I'm good. I'm worth something. Or you can fast forward modern Rocky Balboa. Yeah, when he's asked by his fiance, Adrian, why, you, why do you have to fight Apollo? Why do you have to do this? What's his answer? Because if I can go 12 rounds with a champion, then I'll know I'm not a bum. And then we'll have to make Rocky two, and Rocky three, and Rocky four, and oh man, that terrible Rocky five, and then Creed, because it wasn't enough. Going 12 rounds wasn't enough. You gotta have more and more and more. So by him saying, it's like 
the garden of Yahweh. What he's saying is, if I get there and I'm successful, then I'm completed. I have my identity again. And what it leads to is bitterness and strife and anger. And he tramples on his uncle, who was really his dad and had cared for him for most of his life. And we still believe the same things. If I could just get that, that'll be my garden and it will complete me and it will make me happy. Okay, Matt, are we supposed to take vows of poverty then and and live really poor like monks? Yes. You can give your money to me. No, not at all. Money is a great servant. It's just a terrible master. Abram is filthy rich. Lot's rich. Abram's filthy rich. But you know what? Money doesn't have him. It doesn't have him. You know how I know that? Because he's generous. You'll know if money has you, you won't be generous. You'll know it's your master when you're stingy. Abram's like, take the best land. To take it all, I don't care. I'll take the leftovers. I'm not worried about it. It's not my master. I love you more than I love money. What you're seeing in chapter 13 is Abram starting to get a real good priority. I build altars. What he's saying by that is God's number one. I care about Lot. Family's number two. And money, it's number three. I think that is a brilliant priority list when it comes to what you and I should think through when we make decisions. God, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. That's number one. Number two to me is people or family. Second John says, there's no greater joy than to know your children are walking in the truth. I'll tell you, I have more counseling sessions with people when it comes to heartbreak over kids and what they're doing than anything else. Because there's no greater joy than to know your kids are walking in the truth. The Bible holds up this kind of love for one relationship. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. The highest love ever asked for in the Bible is for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Self-sacrificial love. Why? Because the Bible knows there's no greater joy than having a good, solid marriage. So God first, family second, then throw in whatever God after that. No problem. Abram is literally walking that out. He's walking it out. And he's generous because money does not have him. So finally, Yahweh said to Abram, after the separation, after Lot's gone, Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Eternal covenant. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. You see I said on Sunday, 
you see the absolute pattern of Abram. Every time he moves somewhere, builds an altar, calls upon the name of Yahweh. Lot doesn't. Only one time Abram doesn't do that. It's when he goes down to Egypt. Here, I think you see Shalom. He's at peace now. He's dealt with the strife. He's been generous. He's walked it out super well, kept his priorities straight. Now he gets Shalom. Lot says this, I'm gonna take that land. God says to Abram, I'm going to give you this land. At the end of the day, if you suffer wrong or you're willing to be defrauded like Abram was, I'll guarantee you, you cannot outgive God. Lot says, I'm gonna take this land and we'll see in chapter 14 and on and on and on, it becomes a scourge to him. It's a giant problem to him. Abram's like, hey, no problem. Take whatever you want. I'll take the leftovers. And God says, I'm gonna give you this land forever. Lot never built an altar. Altars are wastes of time. I got more important things to do. Time is money, right? It's all business. Abram, no way. People are my business. People are my business. I love it. What's your business? We gotta make money, no doubt about it. We gotta work, we gotta have jobs, we gotta pay bills, no doubt about it. But what's your ultimate business? I think we'd all learn from Brad Pitt. <laughs> the most unlikely person to learn from, maybe. But he's in a really good spot, I think, right now to learn from. He says, when you die, no one cares about possessions. They care about people. Biblically, when the mountains are gone, and the sun is dimmed, the person sitting next to you will still exist. There are two things the Bible says don't ever fade away or go away. God's word and people. So if I'm looking at long-term investment, what's gonna last? I say I should invest in God's word and in people because those are lasting investments. That's what Abram does. Sacrifices his possession for people. I pray that we do the same thing. If there are people around you that you've been striving with, if there are situations that are bad and tough, man, do verse eight. I don't wanna strive with you. What do I need to do to make this right? Write your dream ticket. Just write it out. What, what would make you happy? I'm not saying I can do all that, but just let's start there. What would make you happy? How do we solve this? Because I don't want to have enemies. I don't wanna have strife. I want shalom. And then you trust God will help you walk it out well. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So Jesus, you are the ultimate peacemaker. You didn't just give up some land. You gave up heaven. You gave up safety, comfort, security. You gave up your life so that we might have peace. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for any in here this day who maybe have been experiencing strife and contention because it's the world we live in. Even with family members, there can be strife and contention. I pray that by your spirit, you would enable us 
to be peacemakers, that you would give us the right words, fitting words, kind words that turn away wrath, that we would be those kind of people and that we could see like Abram, you work through our situations and bring about a peaceful resolution. So help us in that, Lord. I pray that you would fill us with a spirit of love and mercy and kindness, that we would, our natural response would be a kind response. Forgive me, Lord, where I have been rash with my tongue, sharp, demanding my rights, Lord. May I be much more like you, giving up my rights, giving up my life to bring peace. So may we be peacemakers, I pray, like Abram. And I ask this in your name, amen.